You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. School games and the modern games inspired by them. Welcome, one and all, to the Safer Hat Podcast, a podcast about old school RPGs and the modern games inspired by them. I am your host, DM Mike, and I will be playing the role of Starbuck from the original, the real, Battlestar Galactica. Another host is DM Liz, who will be playing the role of Athena, also from the original, also real, Battlestar Galactica. (laughs) (laughs) Totally real. (laughs) And DM Jim, who is playing the role of Buck Rogers in the 25th century, I almost said 24th and a half. Ha, that's okay. I could do the duck voice. I tell you what, four or five hundred years of sleep doesn't sound that bad now. And here is Diem Corbett playing the role of Dino De Laurentiis's Flash Gordon. Hut one, hut two. Pike, go Flash, go. <laughs> go In Flash, it. go. Gordon <laughs> alive. And why are we choosing late seventies, early eighties sci-fi people to be? Because we are covering Star Frontiers by TSR Staff, edited by Steve Winter, published in nineteen eighty-two. I'm not sure if we should be concerned whenever a game is authored by staff. <laughs> I think this is the first time, and I, I wanted to mention it because it was unusual for TSR. I, at the time, to put out something by staff. Well, thanks to John Peterson's epic book, Game Wizards, I have a tidbit about that. Would you like Excellent. the tidbit? Excellent. I, that was part of the reason I brought it up. Tell us. Oh, oh, apparently this started out as an RPG called Alien Worlds by Lawrence Schick and Zeb Cook. And they were working away on it and playtesting it in-house while they were full-time in-house TSR staff. According to Peterson's book, they're constantly telling upper management that they're understaffed and send them more help. So that, But it was just one of those fair-headed stepchild games that was struggling to get done. And then all of a sudden, TSR upper management axed their uh, incentive program that Gary had set up that gave a royalty bonus to in-house designers who brought a game to fruition. And Lawrence Schick said, thank you, no, and just quit and walked out the door. And that's how it came to be written by TSR staff. So I guess when they got Zeb Cook to do some of the later books, he was in an excellent position to write supplements for the game. Yeah, Peterson's book doesn't document if Zeb quit or not, but obviously he was around to do Zebulon's Guide and all that stuff. Yeah, I don't think he did because he was doing 2E stuff, so he was at least doing freelance work. 
But Lauren yeah. Schick gave him the double dwarven salute and walked. Because <laughs> they've been working on it like for a year and a half, and all that work was for a, a royalty bonus, and, and you're not giving me my bonus? Well, guess what? Yep. But I'm glad uh, you chose this, Jim, because we've been getting comments about us covering this game for quite some time. About as much, if not maybe more, than the Marvel Superheroes RPG. Mm. Well, that's a double-edged laser sword, because it depends on what we say about it now, whether those people are going to make them happy. <laughs> well, there is that. Unless anyone has any announcements then, let's head into Mike and the Mechanics. In 2015, a group of gamers were sent to prison by a traffic court for crimes they didn't commit. These men quickly escaped from a serious parking fine. Today, still on the run, they survive by reporting on old school gaming. If you can't buy enough dice, if no one wants to hear about Thaco, and if you look for them where podcasts are, maybe you can listen to The Grognard Files. Time for Mike and the Mechanics! Sorry, sorry, sorry. that's Mike Mike and the Mechanics mechanics of the game. My bad. Mike and the Mechanics. Okay, I'm gonna go real bare bones on this. It is a percentile-based game with eight attributes, though they're put into sets of two. There's Strength Stamina, Dex Reaction Speed, Intuition Logic, and Personality Leadership. Now, while they are percentile, they actually have you roll it up on a table that has you come up, depending on what you roll, as an average number between 35 and 70 to start. Now, you can... It modifies for race you're playing. It can also modify slightly during play. And in the expanded rules, yes, this has a basic book and an expanded book in the box set that you can actually move up to 10 points from one to the next if they're matched together like that in the same, like strength to stamina or vice versa and so on and so forth in order to more individualize your characters. But they don't do that in the basic. Your hit points, where's your strength stamina? You purchase skills to get uh, various ranks depending on your choices, and you you chose a career, and later you earn XP to increase your skills, and they give you a variety of ways to increase the skills. And you roll percentile dice. Everything is D10s in this game, and depending on how you rolled is whether you hit or and all the damage was done by numbers of D10s or D5s later on. Anyway, real simple system. This game was obviously aimed as a, at an introductory, much like the Mold Bay Cook basic expert, I believe. And they're certainly of the same time period. So, before we go into top fives, let's talk about first impressions. And Jim, it was your choice, so you get to lead us off. Oh, I suggested it for exactly what you said. I had people come to me personally and say, when are you guys going to do Star Frontiers? And we actually played this back in the day. So I'm like, why not? Let's do it. Mm -hmm. That was the time when we were all late teens, just getting to be about 20. I guess in 82, I was 21. We just were in that phase where we would play whatever TSR published, you know, Gamma World, 
Boot Hill, Gangbusters, Top Secret, and this was just the next one after that, Champions and a few other, Traveler and a few other things mixed in. And uh, so we gave it a go. You know, my Gamma World campaign went on off and on for 30 years. My brother's A&D campaign is still going, technically. Boot Hill didn't last long. Gangbusters didn't last long. Top Secret didn't last that long. And this was just another one of those. I mean, maybe played it for six months maybe 10 sessions and just got tired of it. So I don't remember it all that fondly, although it was fun enough. I think I saw the the alien characters and it tweaked the, okay, I can power game this thing I had at that age, right? Right. That's what we were all looking for, just a way to jack our characters up. Well, what, I can be an amoeba guy? Okay, let's go. So I don't have the love for it that some younger players who, you know, imprinted on it did. Okay. Uh, Corbett? Uh, actually, it was one of my first fun little games to play, but I had not played any other games at the time. Uh, st- space games. Like, I didn't even realize Star Trek was a game yet. <laughs> so, so this was your first sci-fi game? It's the first sci-fi game. So I, I had a lot of fun with it. And in, in retro, re-looking at it, I kind of like it a little more than I thought I didn't like but I do like it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a very punchy action-based type of game. It's just they put mechanics that threw things off. And I can tell you right now, as far as my sense of the rules way back when, that first little snippet where they kind of give you an idea of what an action scene would be like, but no rules at all, was my interpretation of, oh, that must be how the rules work. <laughs> so, but yeah, this is I kind of thought it was fun to reread. Anyway. Okay. Liz? Uh, Well, like Corbett, Star Frontiers was my first space out of, you know, science fiction. Well, not science fiction, because I guess that would have been Gamma World, really. But Star Frontiers was my first space science fiction RPG game. Yeah. However, I mean, where we lived, all we had were TSR games. So at the time, I was totally clueless as to the existence of games like Traveler, like the FASA games, any of the other game companies. I didn't know that they even existed until I started collecting um, occasional Dragon magazines. And even my first Dragon magazine, I picked up when we went to visit some friends in San Antonio and we were stopping by a bookstore, maybe a Walden Books or something, and they had Dragon magazines there. And so like 57, I think, was the very first Dragon I ever picked up and I didn't know it existed until then. (laughs) But anyway, so it was my first space game, but I've never actually played it. I owned the game, I got it, I read through the rules, but I didn't have anyone to play with, and so I've never played Star Frontiers. But I've owned it for decades. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I remember being really excited about it. It was different, it was interesting. I enjoyed reading the rules as a kid, but yeah, I've never played it. And reading through it again now, with more experience in role-playing, Adult me now would be a little more irritated at the basic rules than I think 13, 14-year-old me would have been. I'm not sure I'd be able to play basic the way they write it out today. I'd be wanting to play expanded because it's closer to your traditional role-playing game. Yeah. Okay. I bought it when it first came out, the original, not even Alpha Dawn, the original box set. And yeah, I was, it wasn't my first sci-fi game. That would have been Traveler, as P. 
people who paid attention to the show would know. And I remember getting this box game. And of course, at that time, TSR, you know, I had Boot Hill, I had Top Secret. I never got into Gangbusters for some reason. I didn't even know it existed until the mid 80s and it was already gone. All the other TSR games I got. So when I found out they were doing a sci fi game, especially with that Elmore cover, was that an easily cover? I forgot. It's Elmore. Yeah, it's Elmore a- on the cover. There was yeah. easily art in the interior. On the interior. That's what I'm thinking of. Okay. But yeah, I was like, ooh, I got to get this. I got it. I love the art. I, you know, I, I initially started digging into it and I ran it for six, nine months, maybe. I even uh, ran it at a convention, CoastCon 83 down in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi. And I didn't stick with it. I mean, it just, there seemed to be, at the time, I felt like it was too much, it felt too much like a 70, or not 70, a 50s pulp Zowie sci-fi game. I loved the stuff that came with it. I thought it came with just the best, the counters, the various maps, the all the various illustrations and everything in and of themselves as game products. They were great, but it, it just struck me as very, almost a tongue-in-cheek in some ways. And as I've gotten older, I was thinking, did I really let my teenage, because I was 13 when I bought it, so... I'm like, am I letting my teenage self just kind of, you know, how teenagers are desperate to be considered adult? And I went back and looked at it, and there's some some things looking back on this game that I think I sold short. There are other things, though, that just kind of stood out to me even more today than did back then, but we'll we'll get into it. On the whole, I think, well, we'll talk about it. So let's go into top five. Since we set the order, we'll start with Jim. Oh, hey. So I'm 100% with Liz because I, I played it. I didn't run it. So my experience with the rules were not that deep. So I'm reading it now. And that front little basic booklet is much more of a sci-fi miniatures game than it is an RPG, which is, I think, what you were saying, Liz. Yes. <laughs> And I wrote a sci-fi minis game called Galacta 3, so I'm just going down the checklist going, okay, yeah, there's that diagram of the grenade scatter chart. There's that diagram where the figures are peeking around corners, because I put all that stuff in my game. Fair enough, it's decent enough rule set, but it's not an RPG. <laughs> and that weird thing where one person had to read it out loud was like a endless quest choose your own adventure book oh, so i yeah 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 <laughs> so i don't i don't know if that's how i would choose to introduce the game the, then then finally like in the back of the expanded rules they get to the meat and potatoes of you know all the charts and all the guns and weapons and i'm like okay now this is an art more sophisticated combat system i'm like okay this is more like an rpg so that's my number five okay Corbett? You know, actually, I really liked the beginning game. It was, it's super simple. So I'm not saying like, oh, it is so much better than the detailed expanded thing. But I thought like, if it was put out as, what was it, like 10 to 12 pages? I don't know, it was like nothing. But if it was either sold for two bucks or just given out like, here, play this game, you would probably be like a lot happier about it. Instead of, you know what, buy this box and you get a bunch of other crap, the rules, and then that's about it. So it's really annoying because it's like, why do I even need to read this? But I think if it was kind of a, like the free version of the game, hey, kids, 
play the free version and then pay for the good stuff. And I think that would be a lot more... Um... First, it's always free. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that as a short, compact little game setup, it hits all the marks. It's not like, ooh, this is dazzling or amazing, but it, it definitely felt like I, I could play this. And okay. I did, but still. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Liz, five. Okay. Going off of what Jim said about the Choose Your Own Adventure books, I mean, that was something that I wrote down as one of mine about the adventure at the back of the basic rules. One of the things that I had pointed out when I was writing down my notes for this, the introduction to the basic rules book states, players are not limited to only a few actions by the rules. A player has complete control over his character and makes all the decisions for him. And then the first adventure in the basic game book is done up like a choose-your-own-adventure book, and you're given only a limited number of choices to pick from at various points, and you have to pick one of those two or three things. Depending on what you choose, it leads you to another point of the adventure. And that seems to be in direct opposition to the you-have-complete-control-over- your character state. And that's more for the expanded rules where you have complete control over your character. (laughs) I think when you have trouble, when you have a game written by a staff. Oh my gosh. Well, it's definitely, we're all pointing to the seams of this was designed by committee. Mm. Yeah. Uh, It does seem to be set up to be as easy as possible for people who have never, ever played a role-playing game before. Okay, we're going to give you limited things to choose from and make it real easy to ease you in to the idea of role-playing. But I would imagine a lot of people, like me, picked up Star Frontiers because they were already familiar with D&D. And that kind of being led by the nose would be off-putting to play through. Even if you were 12 years old at the time, you you know, you've played D&D. You don't need it written to a 12-year-old level because they did that in Marvel superheroes too. We talked about it. Yeah. Uh, Okay. That's me. That's you. My five. This this may be a banner time on Save for Half because... Corbett and I are in agreement against the two of you. Ah, good versus evil. Finally. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> you're totally wrong. Well, let me put on my shocked face. <laughs> we we haven't gotten to it yet, and maybe, hopefully, before we all end up in nursing homes, we will, but I intend to choose <laughs> the fantasy trip for one of my game to cover. And rereading the basic rules, it really reminded me of the first microgame, Melee. Yep. I mean, Melee was, here's how to do very basic hand-to-hand fights in little gamelets that can get done in less than 30 minutes. And it was two bucks, much like Corbett was saying. And to me, that's what they were doing here. And I can see what you mean by the choose-your-own-adventure style. Yeah, if you do this, go to section four. It's like, okay. But if you're... (laughs) If you played the fantasy trip or Tunnels and Trolls, you're used to a lot of the solitaire programmed adventures, so that really wasn't as big a deal breaker. I actually had more of a complaint with those little programmed adventures in the back, which if you read through them, it was like, here at one, choose two, three, or four to do. Two, something happens, go to four. Yeah, yeah. Three, it's like, no matter what happens. you do. Go to four. Yeah, no matter what you do, you eventually go to the same scenario. Right. So it makes no difference what you do. To me, that's that's a bigger grouse and a minor one again, because really these quote-unquote adventures were really just scenarios to teach you how to play the game and was never meant to be a genuine adventure. So I can't. 
I can't argue that much. If you're going to split things and you're aiming for a really intro product, I think this was a perfectly fine way to do it. On a side note, please use one of your picks to pick uh, Melee and Wizard, because I would love to do that show. Well, if I choose Fantasy Trip, it'll be Melee, Wizard, and then In the Labyrinth, and we'll probably like split them up to see each one of us choose one of them to cover. Mm-hmm. Although I'll probably need whoever gets In the Labyrinth, there'll probably have to be two, two of us on In the Labyrinth, because it's like twice the size. It's bigger than Melee and Wizard put together. So anyway. All right, four, Jim. Oh, whoops. So busy paying attention to what you said. I forgot my list. <laughs> All right. So so reading this with modern 2021 eyes, I found some mechanics very, you know, I'm not a percentile skill check kind of guy. That's not my play style. Nothing wrong with it. If you, if you enjoy it, Windows is a fine operating system. There were little mechanics in there that I loved. And the, my favorite mechanic in this whole game is how they rigged it so that if somebody attacks you, if you can come up with a plausible reason why you could avoid that attack, you get an avoidance roll based on your stats instead of the more typical saving throw mechanic, which happens automatically unless the game master and the player both forget about it. That makes that I think that's a genius little mechanic because that makes so much sense because it's situational and it's based on your ability. So if you're like the, I can't think of their names, the two protagonists in uh, Rogue One and you're on the beach and here comes the Death Star explosion wave at you, no, you, there's no role that will let you jump out of the way of that. But if somebody, you know, is just swinging an axe around and they're on roller skates and you think of some way to trip them, you could get an avoidance roll out of it. Yeah, this is probably the... F- earliest role-playing game I've come across where that uh, certainly from the one from TSR that first makes it pretty straight up that there's plenty of stuff that's just automatic success I mean they talk about that in the skills it's like they try to point out to the referee by the way what is it about sci-fi games where the GM has to be called a referee I'm not sure but anyway sports oriented I guess <laughs> if Harlan oh. Ellison were still alive he'd have our heads just for seeing sci-fi so yeah <laughs> but yeah I mean it's the first, there are so many sections in the skills part of the expanded rules that basically says, you know, most things over and over again, if you've got the skill and you're working to do it, it's automatic. And I, I really appreciate that because I think we've all played with the DM or GM who goes, roll for everything, roll for every, roll to tie your shoes, roll, roll to pick up your sword off the bed, roll to put it on your belt. Ugh. Well, I'm an old school gamer too. And if we can role play it, I don't want to have to ask you to make a, a, you know perception check after perception check would you just please play your character and tell me what you're trying to do yeah so okay corbett unlike a lot of other sci-fi games of the time and it, probably games too they explain and show a picture of every weapon uh, at least every weapon i could generally not know <laughs> and it seems pointless to, to point out but i, I feel like hey that's kind of neat to know oh that's what that weapon looks like and this is what it's supposed to do and this is why it works this way and that way kind of useful yeah, the, the, the art is really there's lush art in this thing it's oh, it's yeah. nice I'm credited too, except for the cover art, and I could spot at least Larry Elmore, Jeff Easley, Jim Holloway, and Timothy Truman. And there were a couple artists I just my eye wouldn't tell me who it was. I'm pretty sure it was done by staff. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. Staff gets everywhere. It's like an infection. Uh, <laughs> okay. How drollicite. Little drollicite humor. Yeah. <laughs> you are a dad, so I guess we can't bang on you for dad jokes. <laughs> You don't like Zooty and Zood? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I mistook you for a human with taste. (laughs) (laughs) They're rebooting Babylon 5. Yeah, I read that. That's a whole other show, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're going to get Jim Henson's Muppets to do it. It's going to be great. (laughs) (laughs) I'd watch that. (laughs) 
anyway, go ahead. That was it. That was okay. that, they have pictures of the uh, pictures and descriptions Pretty of what those pictures. weapons are, and, and it's not a big deal, but it is very important to know like that's what it should look like, and this is how it works. I think TSR got got horribly scarred from all the letters of well, what's the difference between a Bilgus arm and a Becta Corbin? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I certainly didn't know until seeing that image with all the different pole arms lined up side by side yeah well and sci-fi stuff is pretty much made up so (laughs) kind of no only game i've ever seen where the character race illustrations employ a cut an abdominal cutaway to show you the internal (laughs) organs inside you know like yeah that is weird well i guess the sathar does too but (laughs) it's just a corpse tacked to a wall i'm just trying to imagine okay here's a dwarf you know the invisible man plastic model dwarf that shows where his organs are, you know, or the elf. Yeah. Oh, but I just love how they tack the Sathar corpse to a wall. It's even got a corpse tag on it. It's great. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Liz, four? Oh, number four. All right. Again, comparing the basic rules to the expanded, one of the things I noticed in the basic rules, you know, like they say, you've got the reader as opposed to the referee. All the reader does in basic is just read off the descriptive text that they give to the players for the adventures. In the basic rules, all of the players unanimously decide things like if actions are possible, what kind of modifiers should be used. And then in the expanded rules, when the reader becomes the referee, they now make those decisions like an ordinary quote-unquote DM or GM would do. And I would be concerned that players who had gotten used to being part of the decision-making process from the basic rules would be upset at having that ability taken away from them when moving to the expanded rules. It just seems a little weird. You know, okay, we're doing group consensus, but now that we've moved to expanded rules, you guys don't get to have a voice anymore. It's just the referee that tells you. And if you're used to being part of the decision making, wouldn't that be kind of hard to let go of? Uh, I guess. I mean, I could see your point. Especially if it's brand new people. Well, in real life, too, that's one of the first things that will go at a table, right? A group and a, and a competent GM will sort that quick and just not do it. <laughs> yeah. Alright. Well... Then my four. I like the idea of primary skill area. Yeah, I'm going to a skill system. Yeah, I went there. <laughs> I like the idea of their skill system. You know, you've got the military, the the technological, and the biosocial. And the idea of you can get a skill, and that skill has sub-skills to it. And if you get X in a skill, you can try anything in that sub-area. So it's not like you end up with, do you have hunting? No, but I have tracking. But do you have hunting? No, but I have <laughs> skill with bow. I'm specialized in a bow. But do you have hunting? hunting. (laughs) So I liked that. That's my good. My bad is they come up with the idea of skills have level ranks from one to six. You have a base percentile and then first they come up with an elegant percentile system, but then the base percentile for each skill changes from skill subskill to subskill, which I think kind of blows the elegance of the percentile system. Plus, it's a little crunchy. Then, well, what are the levels? How do they affect? Well, each level in a skill is a 10% added to the base. Then why not just say just... You, you gain 10% every time you move up while you have the level ranks at all because you're just doing that. That's just one more step. So I'm not sure why they did it that way. That seems 
when I first uh, was rereading this, because I haven't played Star Frontiers in like 28 years, and I saw the levels one to six, I was like, hey, so how is that going to add into the percentiles? And it's like, oh, that's how. I remember now. That is weird. Why, why is it that way? That's needlessly crunchy. So I like the intent behind the skill system, but I think it they're trying to shoehorn both percentile and low numbers in. They really ought to just go one direction or the other and, and go full on in it. So that's mine. Gem three. Aren't we on number two now? Huh? I, uh, said, or, I thought no, we I were on number three. Two. Mm, number three? Uh, it, was, it was worth a shot. No, it's my four. Okay, my number three. <laughs> <laughs> One of the mechanics I really love in this game, and I'm going to just from this point forward assign everything I like to Lawrence Schick and Zeb Cook and assume everything I don't like was the committee. <laughs> was staff. So I, I, I think I think this came from them was the idea that there are no classes for the player characters and there's not you'd think there would be, but there's not really races class either. The different alien races you can play all have their little knickknacky special abilities and humans are still the golden standard, yay humans. But there's no classes. Everybody's just an agent either for the corporation or the government. So how do the characters differentiate besides being different alien species? It's that skill system you were just talking about. And it's kind of a pseudo class where, okay, I want to specialize in computers or medicine or combat. Modern games do this, although not often. We're so stuck in that D&D template. And I think for 1982, that was brilliant. No classes, no races class. You just have these skills and specialize your characters that way. Yeah, and you choose one of those three as your career, military, technological, or biosocial, and you can get skills in the other two that you didn't yeah. choose, but they're twice as much. They cost more, but nothing's stopping you if you but suddenly you are. Right. So, yeah, you can mix and match all over the place. So, so kind of like real life. You can go to art school, but now suddenly you need to be a writer. Okay, I can figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Corbett? I, I presume everybody's dancing around the invisible elephant in the room, but there's there's no spaceships, so... Well, that's the next box set. Oh, uh, okay. I know. It's just but like... you didn't know that when the first set came out. That's true. It didn't say, and that's why when I first got the first set, and there was not even really any talk about starships... Well, there's a spaceship it, it... on the cover. Yes, <laughs> you got a spaceship on the cover and no spaceships in the game. And then the introductory adventure, Crash on Volturnus, is well named. You <laughs> crash from a liner, you, you escape in a pod to land on this wild planet, and hilarity ensues. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's funny that they put so many other vehicles in it and explained all the rules for those vehicles. Tons of vehicles. In, in detail. Like, big detail. What and a whole little sub-game, like... and usually a designer will avoid that stuff in an RPG like the plague. I did. Mm. I have a question for you guys. Younger, springier minds may remember this better, but I don't own the copy I bought in 1982, so the copy I have today is the Alpha Dawn set. But I swear to God, that first one just said Star Frontier's basic set. It did. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Well, actually, I think it just said Star Frontiers. I don't think it said Basic Set. I think it just said Star Frontiers. Then you opened it up, and it said Basic Book and Expanded Book. Yeah. Okay, okay. So I, I wouldn't swear to that. That's almost 40 years ago, so... I'm, I'm looking on Google right now, and I can see the two box sets, and mine was the original one. The Alpha Dawn, you know, had the purple, and mine was all blue. Blue. And it just said Star Frontiers on it. Seems like they changed that in the late 80s, wasn't it, or early 90s? Oh, no, 
Alpha Dawn went in 83, so it was only like a year later. It was as soon as they did the spaceship box set. They uh, Only because they got a lot of feedback from devoted fans wanting to know when starships were going to be showing up. Yeah. Come on, Brain, you can do this. The space set was called Nighthawks? Right. Yeah. Okay. With a K, Night. <laughs> Like Knigget. Yeah, it's spaceships with Michael Hasselhoff and Oh wait. Wait, never mind. I'm sorry, right. Corbett, I interrupted your number two. No, that was Great. my number two. Was like, <laughs> whatever, whatever. Stop that, Jim. Nice, nice try. <laughs> I'm just so tired. Bye. Peace, sir. There it's nothing really that huge, but everybody who hasn't read this would probably want to know up front. There are no spaceships in it. Oh, I think it's very huge. I thought it was huge at the time. Almost as big as Timeship. Not having Timeship. <laughs> he's getting feisty. But at yeah. least she has robots. He, he's, he's, he's resenting me because I keep correcting him on the twos. That's so. true. We do have robots in this. So there's yes, that. Yes, there are robots. No Is spaceships without robots. Is that your three, Liz? Oh, sure. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Take we it have me. robots. And one of yes, the most ridiculous lines that I've ever read in a role-playing book, a robotics expert specializes in robots. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? You know, it's like, why? Yes, of course a robotics expert specializes in robots. Okay, devil's advocate here, partially because you stole my Wobots. Wobots! <laughs> but... Could partially be because it's an intro game, and partially from those players, and we've all met them, who will go, well, I'm a robotics expert, and robots are run by computers, so why can't I reprogram this security computer? Isn't the door just a door robot? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess. <laughs> so yeah, This is also back when, you know, working on a computer in a high oxygen atmosphere was fine while smoking a cigarette. So it's okay. <laughs> well, everybody <laughs> smoked in space. Are you kidding? <laughs> well, yeah, it's the only way to keep it smooth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was space menthol, so it was all right. <laughs> space menthols. <laughs> <laughs> in in outer space, the tar doesn't stick to your lungs. You're fine. <laughs> Virgo Slims, you've hyperspaced a long way, baby. You forget about how it used to be. Do you watch an old movie? Or I was just watching Cowboy Bebop again. I'm like, everybody in this cartoon smokes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Okay. Anyway. Well, since Liz picked on robotic specialists... I'm going to pick on computer specialists. Good. That needs to be mentioned too. <laughs> computer specialists have among abilities writing programs. They get to write one program per level rank they have in the skill. And only one. Ever? <laughs> Ever. When they get up to rank two, they can write one more program. Oh, I missed that. That's stupid. Now, up to six... You can then start writing any number that you want. But you gotta make it to six. And I'm like, what? Even in the early 80s. I mean, this is the era of people sticking 800-line basic programs in their computer magazines that you were expected to manually type out on your Commodore PET at home. I went to school with guys that did that in, in like, 1980, where your homework was a whole shoebox of punch cards. So maybe they just figured you get one shoebox a level. I can't... <laughs> I guess. I mean, but it's just like, it, it strikes me as this is one of the things, and I think I noticed this at several points through the game, that there were some rules decisions made 
that I think were made less because they made it made sense, even though we're talking about science fiction invention, adventure in a distant galaxy that has nothing to do with Earth, but still doesn't make sense, as opposed to rules balance, especially for an introductory game. I think you caught him. I think that's exactly what it was. And I think it... I, I think if we tried to at back go back in a time machine to TSR and say, what the heck are you thinking? Probably the first thing they would say is, this game wasn't written for guys like you. Shut up and get out of our, our offices. <laughs> but it's an intro game. It's for intro players. I'll remember what they said about how to um, bypass security. You can bypass a security program manually by rewiring the computer. <laughs> oh, yes, I forgot that. The security like, program on a computer like, can be what? bypassed by rewiring. I'm like, what? <laughs> That's like start the original Star Trek series when they go under the console for Spock to do something, and it's a bunch of 1950s vacuum tubes and wires <laughs> under there. To be fair, you know, Blake 7 certainly didn't escape that. Yeah, it's like that's like reversing the polarity of the neutron, neutron flow. flow. It's like that's just nonsense. <laughs> but again, very Zowie 50s, 60s or even dare we say it, early 70s sci-fi. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's my 3. Jim, it's time for 2. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I had this reaction from way back when we originally played it, and this is just, your mileage may vary. If you grew up on this game, you may feel differently, but those alien races are all weak and they suck, whether they're PCs or NPCs. I mean, I was a well-read sci-fi genre media, typical Star Wars, Star Trek head when this game came out. I will give them points for not making all the aliens humanoids with bumpy foreheads. They get points for that, but the Drasolites and the Vrusk and the little chimpanzee wing glider guys are all just weak they read like they came out of somebody's homebrew campaign sorry zeb cook if that was you <laughs> well did you like it or dislike it because that would say that was <laughs> no, no, i think they're, they're just in general they're just kind of weak and milk toast aliens i could and do better so you could do better probably Am I just <laughs> superimposing too on it at least personality wise did the frusk yazirians and dralocytes strike anyone as elves dwarves and halflings if that's what they intended they missed uh, <laughs> maybe not exactly Exactly, but I think I'm going to talk about that when we get to me on number two. Okay, well, I'll, I'll skip that then. Okay, Corbett, two? Uh... I want to talk about the races and how they're like the fantasy races. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and you're wrong. They're not. As always, I, I get hung up in the money. <laughs> oh, it's just a ladder cost 10 coppers again. <laughs> no, yeah, more. Well, this is this is more of a squid game thing. Like, oh, you're gonna get 14 million Hyohuyo, and like, well, how much is that? Like a thousand bucks? Kill everybody in the room, okay? <laughs> but it was this moment. I was I went through and figured out um, the credit is roughly worth like 30 cents on the dollar or 30 cents on the credit U.S. dollars. Nineteen dollars. Which most everything is like, I guess, because it's all abstract science stuff. Mm. The bit in the beginning, the little one page walk through, this is the story, how the story would go. I, I thought it was supposed to be a rules explanation, but wasn't. At the end of the bit, this, they go through this big firefight and chase down the hall and all this crazy stuff. And we're going to have to fix this. And it's going to take weeks. And it's like, well, I've got a job for you. It's going to be like 200 credits. Are you interested? And the characters come back with, oh, yeah, 60 bucks. I am totally <laughs> ready to get my self-killed <laughs> hey, hey I'm gonna... 19 two dollars <laughs> that'd be 180 dollars today i'm gonna buy uh, my own spaceship okay. oh, who's gonna <laughs> fly it kid <laughs> <laughs>
just funny. I, I, every so often, I, I like picking apart the money because they always do something like that. Take a yeah. double take and go, wait a minute. I'm going to stick up for you, Corbett, because there's a guy on YouTube right now that gamed 7-Eleven. They had like this download the 7-Eleven app and you get a thousand points and a thousand points equals one slice of pizza. But you have a code and if you can get somebody to use your code and sign up, you both get a thousand points. So he figured out how to game it. And he ended up, he and his girlfriend ended up with four million points and fed their entire town, the homeless and all the charities with like wow. beef, 7-Eleven <laughs> beef jerky and pizza. It's awesome. So it, so it matters. Uh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Besides. I promised him 35,000 Zulex to testify on my behalf. <laughs> For you heavy metal movie fans. But, um... Oh, Zulex. Well, okay then. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Liz. Two. All right. Reading this again, I did not get the dwarf, elf, etc. vibe from the alien characters. What I did get a vibe on coming from it now, as opposed to back in 1982 when this didn't even exist yet. But now I get a vibe of the Galaxy Rangers cartoon show, hmm. the Kiwis, the, the other, and... yeah, the other aliens. This this ah. feels like it to me. And I was reading through this, and I started wondering: Is there any way to find out if the Galaxy Rangers cartoon was inspired by Star Front? and their Star Law Rangers. Because you could totally rock a, yes. a Galaxy Rangers with this rule set. Yeah, you and could. Be honest, very little change. Because as much as I didn't like them, they kept these alien races forever. They were in D20 Future book. Yeah. Huh. I mean, obviously the Kiwi didn't shapeshift, but other than that, yeah. Well, I think in the adventure in the back, wasn't there the part where they're riding ostriches or something? Or, yeah, or these like... Uh, lizards? I can't yeah, remember what liz- Lizardy ostrich things. <laughs> things yeah. yeah, that and I was thinking more about it. That conversation that you and I had earlier, Mike, about how science fiction stories are basically, they're the same stories as fantasy stories. You've just got different packaging. And the intro fiction piece at the front of the game, you've got the same kind of adventure hook. You've got the characters, you're going after a criminal. In D&D, it would be orcs or monsters or something. You're giving chase, you're fighting them, you're bringing them in, you're getting credits slash gold. And at the end of the day, they're all sitting around a table in a tavern, drinking and celebrating until the next adventure comes to them. You know, it's the same thing you do. Speaking of copies, let me just throw this in here, that there is no united federation of planets of course in this game there is the united planetary federation which is totally yeah. different. totally <laughs> I different. Thought that was hilarious and the pan galactic gargle blaster i mean corporation corporation yeah, that's right that's right <laughs> as a corporation they make the pan galactic gargle ah, blaster okay. that's our product yes. Although, reading about them, I couldn't but think of the World Welfare Work Association <laughs> from uh, Dirty Pear anime. Yes. But anyway, no, I, I, I think you've got a point. This could make a really good Galaxy Rangers setup. So that's it? That is it. That was the vibe I got. <laughs> All right. And again, much like the races, maybe something I'm just reading into it. But was there a lot of hypnotism in this game? <laughs> <laughs> I do not know what you're talking about. It looks like nothing to me. Ah, because there's almost a creeper level of hypnotism going on. It's like, oh, the evil alien Sathar, they control people by hypnotism. 
But if you want to learn stuff and you're bored on your ship, you can use our self-hypnotism units to learn new skills. Yeah, that's <laughs> not a problem waiting to happen, is there? <laughs> well, if you rewire it, maybe. Get hypnotized <laughs> to do other things. No, well, you're you right. See, we... no, no, no players would ever game that system. Never. Yeah. Well, you see, fortunately, we managed to get it without having to pay for it because we rewired the security system, the, 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 the code yeah. out of it. So I'm sure this will be fine. You try it. <laughs> players at my table, that would be, okay, that's our next mission. We're going to go steal one of those machines. <laughs> uh, and again, that's very pulp sci-fi though is very you know i i keep getting back to the 50s you know the kind of pulp sci-fi but you know there's nothing wrong with that because most of the designers at tsr were old enough that they grew up with the 50s sci-fi yeah uh, it's also very manchurian candidate too mm. no you know hypnotism. you don't know that you've been given these commands until you're in the situation and suddenly switch is flipped inside of you and you're doing stuff i wonder if they're taking stuff from blake's or not blake's Seven. Yeah, Blake Seven. Yeah, yeah they Blake did Seven. Hypnotizing on Blake Seven too. Well, yeah, you know, I've I've got a whole bitch session I haven't gotten to yet, but oh, <laughs> on, on that subject, Buck Rogers was on TV when this game came out, or had just been on TV, and that Flash Gordon movie had just come out a year or two before that, so it was in the air. Of all the things that were in the air, those are two weird ones to target. So let's let's take riffs from them. Yeah, yeah. And there was no other science fiction shows at all at that time. Ever. <laughs> Was there hypnotism I mean, in Flash Gordon? I'm sure Ming did it at some point with a ring. Well, there was the drugged wine. Yeah, it was the no, it was the mind control on ha, ha, ah, Hans. on Hans Zarkov. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right. I don't know if it was hypnotism or like a drug right. thing, uh, but yeah. it was some, they did something. Yeah, brainwashing of yeah, some kind. The, yep. the drugging was uh, Dale. They used a brain ray. Because <laughs> remember the old Flash Gordon, everything was a ray. Yep. <laughs> the hypnotism ray. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Jim, take us home. All right, here's my number one. Not only was this thing designed by committee and it shows, not only was the writing aimed at 12-year-olds and it shows, but what were they even thinking? I mean, in the beginning, TSR is like, okay, we got to have a sci-fi game. They started down that trail before Metamorphosis Alpha and Cam World. They were going to take Star Empire and Star Probe and make them into an RPG. Then Jim Ward came along and they found two games we all love, but they still came back to this because, let me explain it. If there was ever a genre license out there that mirrors the structure of D&D with a group of adventurers and murder hobos that are just out to kick over all the bad guy anthills, it was Star Wars. And this came out in the middle of the first three Star Wars movies. So not going and licensing that property or just plain stealing it, you know, and emulating it was a missed opportunity. I have no idea of all the science fiction inspirational media genre out there. They went the way they went with Star Frontiers. I can understand why they didn't just steal it because, I mean, yeah, Pace Setter sort of did that with Star Ace. But yeah, if anybody's going to get sued in the RPG industry by Lucasfilm, it's going to be TSR. I don't mean stealing was a poor choice of words, but we played everything. Our first sci-fi game was, Game World's More Science Fantasy, was really Traveler. Mm -hmm. And then we did Space Opera. And then we got to Star Frontiers. And in the end, we came back to Traveler because we could jack Traveler into Star Trek. Mm -hmm. So they weren't thinking in those terms, clearly. They just like, this is our made-up setting. And it's, it's okay. It's not bad. 
bad, but it's not. There's sci-fi stuff laying all around, and it doesn't really attempt to emulate any of it. And that's where D&D comes from, is those pulp books as inspirational sources. Yeah. So that's my number one beef with Star Frontiers, is it's just, what were they thinking? Okay. Corbett? Well, for my number one, I'll tell you what they were thinking. They were thinking <laughs> of the future, Jim. And what do they use in the future to measure everything? The metric system, of course. <laughs> <laughs> They did do that. We are all using metrics. There is an entire page of nothing but how the metric system works with the imperial measurements. Why do you even put... I'm not going to go into that, but... <laughs> because it sounds all science fiction-y. <laughs> yes. Besides, I this don't know is what a... a metric is. <laughs> there is no Earth. This is happening in a whole other portion of the galaxy. So shouldn't yeah, they have been Vutons or something, you know? <laughs> Glagomirs? Spatials. Spatials. Yeah, it's a good non-specific. Uh, cubit. <laughs> and it has the word space. Yeah. In it. It's it's souls in space. <laughs> so yeah, metricalicious. I'm not gonna waste another centon on this arbitrary measurement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Bunch of vulgar carb. <laughs> There you go, okay. number one. Bliss. Alrighty, my number one. Looking at the creatures section in the book, and it started to dawn on me after looking at the army rats. Damn it! They're just <laughs> giant rats, right down to the chance of being infected by a disease if they bite Did you. Did you look at my list? I did not, but you know how I am about giant rats. But then you've got the slither, which the art for it looks very much like a carrion crawler. And the sand shark is a variant of the boulet. And whether yep. they meant to do this or not, it is actually a good way to show that you can take monsters from your existing AD&D monster manual and just tweak them a little to make them into alien creatures for this game. Shh, the rules is written. People don't know this secret, Liz. Don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, a lot of the technology in there, I thought, seemed to mimic D&D spells, whereas the Tangler Grenade was a web spell, even to its effect and mm -hmm. how long it lasted. The Shock Gloves were Shocking Grasp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over and over. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, this is an intro game after all. And odds are, all these sort of things, I'm sure, like, for instance, the web spell, both were influenced by Spider-Man, so... But yeah, I did notice that. Creep. What? <laughs> sent me... So, Mike, what was your number one? Scrambling to find another number one. Okay. <laughs> I like how not only, I know Liz already mentioned this earlier, but the glossary in the basic book, but the expanded book has an index. I think between the two, especially in the larger expanded book, that's very helpful. And again, for new people, back when there were such things as indexes in books that you could point people to teach students how to how to use an index rather than, well, how do I use the Google on this hardback book? So No, it's a requirement. I, I, I just read the John Peterson book last week, but that didn't tell me what page the information about uh, Lawrence Schick quitting TSR was on. I had to use an index. I've had to explain to my students how to use an index. And these really? are college students, yeah. So, anyway. Do you pull out a sword and go, don't you know how to use the Dewey <laughs> Decimal <laughs> System? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sorry. I'm just old and I'm going to be grumpy now. So what, your your students, are they just stuck with bookmark PDFs and search functions? Is that their idea? I didn't grill them about it. If I had to guess, probably. 
or they're not used to actually referencing specific portions of a book. They were talking about, well, I need to look at this book, but the book is huge. So, you know, I, can't, I don't have time to read all of it to find what I need for my paper. And I'm like, well, you don't have to. Just use the index and you can find the topics you need. Well, how do I do that? So I explained it. Yeah. Well, if you're used to dealing with electronic documents. You just do a word search. You do a word search, you know, do a control F, find, and... Yeah, I do that now if it's an ebook. But if I use print books now, yeah, I would, I would just use the index. And Mike, students, if you're listening, do both. Use all the tools. <laughs> <laughs> do everything. Yes, because I give my students a letter grade increase if they listen to Save for Half. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I, I could see that backfiring, too. You don't want to do that. Yeah, because apparently the chair of my department listens to my... Hi! Yay! My chair listens to my podcast. And he's totally awesome, by the way. He's the most amazing chair ever to sit ahead of any department ever. You certainly can't question his taste in game podcasts. That's true, right. True. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take a pod break. And then we come back, we'll see what makes the save and what takes half. This time, there's no limit. <laughs> no limit to the lunacy. <laughs> I want no limit to the stars. What a team. Burt Reynolds. Down and dirty. Dom DeLuise. What a guy. Woo! And 28 of Hollywood's biggest wheels. Yes, Cannonball Run 2. This is exciting. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Hey, now Cannonball. Coming this summer opens Friday, June 29th. This portion of the show is being brought to you by Ed's nuclear-powered popcorn popper. The popcorn popper that never leaves a kernel of corn unpopped. Remember, with Ed's nuclear-powered popcorn popper, meltdown isn't just for butter anymore. What makes a save and what is going to take half? What makes the save and what takes half? And we'll start again with Jim. What makes the save? Star Frontiers does have a generic vanilla sci-fi setting that's not notably inspired by any genre literature or popular genre media, but that can be a good thing. It gives you plenty of freedom to run it the way you want to run it and form it into the kind of sci-fi game you want. So that's a good thing. That makes a save. And what takes half? Um, Star Frontiers has a generic vanilla sci-fi head. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you took that's my not thing. inspired by any popular media, and I hate that. Fair enough. Corbett? I really, really enjoy the fact that the intro game is a simple, fun, fast game. And I think that is an element I would recommend to any game designer to essentially put out the freebie game to, to like, here here's the idea of the game the general wave or gesture of what the game is without like here's the whole game and then people could see it try it and feel it seeing the art and everything i think they'd be essentially a, t a teaser i guess i think it's a great idea yeah this was the era before quick starts or free rpg day or anything you know yeah that's true it'd be cool but it would be cool would have been cool <laughs> if, the, if tsr could have started it they kind of did because with this one i think marvel did uh, like a basic basic version version of the game at the beginning like a separated book was the basic yeah they did the basic and i think they called it advanced didn't they yeah in the box set the basic box set there was like right yeah you're right yeah there was rules. the and then yeah, there was, there was like, the battle book and the campaign book that was it right including like little storyboarded example adventures yeah. so very of the same hand mm -hmm. yeah uh, the committee worked <laughs> the committee has spoken <laughs> i i like that anyway 
fails uh, fails the save doesn't make the save i put vanilla but i feel bad now because that's really <laughs> it's really not true because i know the fans that are fans of star frontiers are like no there is a whole world and a society and a built background but in the first game it's here's some races here's some stuff and here's what gets you going which goes back to my save it's simple it's straightforward and it's pretty easy it does get a little mathy i think in the the rules but you can ignore a lot of that and kind of skip past it i think but anyway vanilla okay <laughs> liz all right what makes the save i think the game does a very good job of giving you a complete sandbox area to play in you've got your basic alien races you've got a bad guy race to fight against you've got a portion of space to travel around in multiple inhabited planets to travel to uncharted territory to explore. In the expanded rules, you're encouraged to make your own alien creatures, but you have all the tools you need to start with right out of the box without doing that initially. So as far as just opening up the box and immediately getting started, you can do that. They've even got pre-gen characters you can pick from to play in the adventures that are included. So you don't even have to spend time making up your own characters if you want to just jump totally in from the get-go. So that's nice. What does not make the save for me, I'm sure it will surprise absolutely no one who has listened to previous episodes, that I am not a fan of miniatures warfare style rules. And there's a lot of that granular level of rules in this game regarding movements, actions, and turns. You've got things like sight lines, range modifiers, movement, hardcover, softcover, use of counters, counterfacing, can you stack counters, etc. A grenade scatter chart. Yes. Mm, for crying out loud. And, and then there's one part where they're talking about how to move. It's like, to move through a closed door, a character must stop next to the door. And then on the next turn, the character can move through the door at half speed. Picking up an object that weighs more than 10 kilograms takes one turn. Picking up an object that weighs 10 kilograms or less takes half a turn. And just on and on and on. It's like, just go through the door already. Who cares? It's like, <laughs> like why? <laughs> I would throw all of that out. I don't care about the amount of turns it takes to go through a door or to pick up something. It's like, ugh. You sound like you've got a Star Rangers game in you. I, I might. But I tell you what, there will be no counterfacing and all that crap. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mine makes the save. This was the first and most complete in a single box pile of goodies for a sci-fi RPG I had ever come across. And I'd put it up against most games that followed it throughout the 80s. It had tons of goodies. It had lots of pictures of the various equipment, of the various creatures. You had maps. You had a city map. You had a planetary map. You had various terrain-type maps. You had all sorts of cool maps. The Volturnus had the section inside a starship map. You, you just had tons of stuff, and the counters, you had counters specified for PCs, for opposition, for police, for pirates, for robots, for various types of vehicles, both ground, hover, and flying, you know, atmospheric craft. It just had tons of stuff, and it was awesome. Didn't make the save. Which, by the way, as I've mentioned before, all that stuff was useful in any sci-fi game you were playing. Right. You know, even if you weren't playing Star Frontiers, I used it a lot for Traveler. 
And I think this falls under the thing of written by TSR staff. The game's mechanics and everything, just the whole system didn't feel like it was under a single vision. Yeah. Love or hate AD&D, you got the feeling that was a single vision. Metamorphosis Alpha, even Gamma World, single visions or two-person visions. And I think Lawrence, I'd really have liked to have seen Alien Worlds as put out by Lawrence Schick and Zeb Cook. I, I I would have loved to see how that rule system. Now I'm not talking about the the setting. I'm talking about the rules. That would be so interesting if that still existed somewhere to get your hands. The manuscript, on which probably would be worth three grand right now. So. <laughs> hey, hey, John Peterson can afford it. If you're listening, John, you know your next assignment. <laughs> <laughs> your mission, should you choose to accept it. This podcast will self-destruct in five glucknards. <laughs> All right. Well, that has been Star Frontiers by TSR Staff. 1982 by TSR, curiously enough. <laughs> what a good show. Who picked this one? <laughs> Who indeed. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed listening to it, and I... Hope all the Star Frontiers fans out there, it was worth the wait. And we look forward to hearing from you. And send us emails where you differ with our point of view, please. Oh, yeah. We love those. I used to know the email address. Now I can't seem to come up with it. Saferhalfpodcast at gmail.com. There it is. We shall sign off then. Say goodnight, everybody. Good night. See ya. Night. I'll charge you three Briarchs for that. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast is a production of the Mud Puppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Save for Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Half.